Welcome to Fourth Estate, the show that brings journalists together to discuss the week's media affairs. Coming to you from 2SCR on Gadigal lands and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, my name is Marcus Costello. Coming up, what to make of the coverage of the Orlando shooting? Gorka, the internet's original gangster, files for bankruptcy and the new frontiers of news. Joining me in the studio from LGBT news publisher Star Observer, Shannon Power. Hello, Shannon. Hello, thanks for having me. Also in the studio, ex-AFP journalist, now croaky news editor, Amy Coops. Hello, Amy. Hello. And on the phone, Fairfax's national political reporter, Michael Coziol. Hello, G'day. Michael. G'day. Now, the most deadly mass shooting in US history has been described by world leaders, including our own, as an attack on all of us. It's fair to say there's been a widespread resistance to call the massacre a hate crime. A lot of reports didn't mention that Pulse was an LGBT venue. Let's take a listen to a clip from a Sky News interview where Guardian UK columnist Owen Jones stormed off the step after the Sky News anchors insisted the gunman had attacked people in general rather than LGBT people specifically. At the end of the day, this was a homophobic hate crime as well as terrorism. It has to be called up because I have to say, on Sky News and other, lots of news channels, there's not been many LGBT voices that I've personally heard myself. And people have to understand, as LGBT people watching this and elsewhere, that they look at something like this and it is one of the worst atrocities committed against LGBT people in the Western world for generations. Well, it's, it's, and it's, it's, it has a, to it's be called something out that's carried out against human beings, isn't yeah. it? No matter LGBT, what no. Because no, 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 let's, no. let's, 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 let's just make this point thing. that yeah. you, you cannot say this is a worse attack than what happened in Paris, where, again, innocent that. people were actually... I said about it's LGBT people. What I'm saying is this has to be called out for what it is. It was an intentional attack... On LGBT people, this well, person... On, on the freedom of, of all people to try and enjoy themselves as, as bad No, I'm sorry, can we just explain? You don't understand this because you're not gay, OK? So just Whether listen. I'm gay or not has no... No, it does. It, can you just, it has just no, listen? It has I no know, reflection I, I, I on the listen. fact that... Michael, some heated scenes there. What yeah, I mean, it's certainly um, got... Firstly, to anyone who hasn't watched that full clip, you've, you've simply got to go and force yourself to uh, sit through the whole thing. It's kind of fantastic in a sort of car crash uh, way. But... Um, uh, yeah, look, I, th- I think it's 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 been quite frustrating the whole thing because uh, you know people want to create a narrative out of this that suits them politically, and I think on the right, clearly people uh, uh, have wanted to spin this as you know attack on all of us, an attack on freedom, not so much as an attack on gay people. Um, and then on the left, you've had a lot of people who want at the same time want to minimise the role that uh, radical Islam has played in this, which, uh, you know, I also think is, is not sensible and is clearly wrong. Um, it, it's clearly both at the same time. And I, and I sort of feel like Owen Jones in that interview, I'm like, I don't understand how, why, how, how, why people don't accept, uh, readily accept that being the case, that it's both at the same time. And I think implicit in the people who wanted to kind of not talk about the fact that this was targeted at LGBTI people. Implicit in that argument is that uh, uh, it, it would somehow be lesser uh, if we recognise that it was targeted at gay people, that somehow it wouldn't quite be the same uh, uh, attack on freedom and attack on our rights and everything, and it wouldn't affect people in the same way and it wouldn't be as powerful uh, example of Islamic terrorism. And I just don't accept that that's the case. I think clearly it's an attack on gay people and therefore we should all be affronted by that as if it were any other sort of attack. 
Amy, I can see you nodding your head as you listen to Michael there. What are your thoughts? Um, I think also it's important to recognise, I mean, I completely agree with Michael, obviously, that's why I'm nodding, but I think it's important to recognise as well that there's, you know, there's a very powerful sort of like narrative, as you mentioned, at play here. And like, I think there's, you know, there's an imperative from sort of like the right side of, of politics and, you know, the, the media who are sort of go hand in hand with them to seize this as an Islamic terrorist attack and to downplay the the queer element because I think that doesn't fit comfortably with their own narratives around, I mean, you know, like there's lots of political things going on in this country that are disadvantaging gay and lesbian people and, um, you know, Malcolm Turnbull himself sort of like very ginger about it in the first sort of 24 hours talking about this being a gay attack and that makes sense because he can't he can't in good conscience come out and and say you know beat his chest about the gay community when in fact he's one of those who is seeking to disenfranchise us i don't i think shannon probably has thoughts on that too yeah We've actually been um, copped a bit of grief at the Star Observer because there are many in the community that want us to talk about who the attacker was, what his background and religion were, um, and to talk about whether there is a campaign against LGBTI people by radical Muslims. That's not something we're prepared to do at the moment. What we need to do, I think, as an LGBTI media organisation is talk about how the community heals from here. Uh, we keep hearing love is love and we have to, you know, counter hate with love. Um, I don't always subscribe to that. I think Helen Razor did a great piece about that in the conversation, uh, in Crikey today. Um, we have a different responsibility and it's almost irrelevant uh, for the moment who the guy was, what his motivations were. It's the fact that people who are LGBTI were not safe in their own space. It was supposed to be sacred. It was supposed to be a safe place. Um, And what we're trying to do, I think, as a media organisation is reinforce that when you don't feel either safe in your own home because your family's homophobic or you're not safe in the street because of your sexuality and gender, um, that's a really huge issue that people need to realise. And that's why there is such a collective sense of grieving and mourning and fear that's happening around the world in the LGBTI community, a very diverse group of people, uh, you know, the LGBTI people from around the world. But it's it's one thing that I think is universal, that's a ex- shared experience, is the feeling of discrimination, fear and the lack of safety that every single LGBTI person has faced at some point in their life. And that's the priority we're setting at the Star Observer is to remind the wider community that this was a homophobic attack and needs to be, uh, we need to remind people that LGBTI people are never safe. If it would be, if it were remiss not to say that this was a hate, a hate crime and he was targeting an LGBT venue specifically, would it not be also remiss to not mention his ethnicity and his um, political and ideological beliefs? Uh, well, we do would report on it. We do... Um, we will mention it in stories, and I think we have. Um, yes, I, 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 it's remiss not to talk about it, but we're not going to focus on it. It's not important for us. And I think we have that advantage as a niche media company is we have a very specific community to speak to. And I think for now, we, it's, it's about healing and we have a role in that. 
Michael, a lot's been made of the fact that the gunman's parents were born in Afghanistan. What's the public interest in knowing that? Your brief is to find out as much as you can about this guy and report it, pretty much report it all. People want to know who this guy was and what his background was. So I don't really, I'm not, I don't think it's irrelevant. This is a guy who was motivated uh, by homophobia, yes, but also by uh, uh, religiously driven hate and religiously driven homophobia. Right, but if we accept that anyone who commits a mass shooting is deranged, then is it reasonable to assume that what they say is true? Like, was the killer truly acting under orders from ISIS? or just seeking publicity and the group's approval from a personal act of hate? Yeah, we, we don't know. Uh, and he may have been. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm more talking about the fact that, you know, by the course of his actions that night, uh, there seems to be some element of, uh, you know, being driven by uh, religious fundamentalism. And I, and I think, you know, a lot of people on the left have to kind of uh, uh, face that reality as well. Um, you know, we, it, it, it's got to be looked at as a homophobic, ter- uh, you know, homophobic terrorist attack uh, committed, you know, apparently in the name of Allah. There's an excellent article in the New Republic, not a right-wing publication at all, uh, you know, saying that this underlines the fact that Islam, like, you know, other monotheistic religions, and they're all plagiarisms of each other, uh, it has a major problem with homophobia. The argument doesn't have to be, was it an attack, was it an an Islamic attack or a gay hate crime, they're not mutually exclusive. It can be both. He can have acted in the name of Allah and he can have targeted um, gay people. I don't understand this argument that people are saying, well, it's it's an Islamic attack, but it can also be a homophobic Islamic attack. I haven't been able Mm. to get my own head around people who want to separate these two things. And I think the thing about ISIS and why they're in inverted commas so successful is because anybody can hitch their tent uh, to the name, to the cause, they'll be accepted. Um, they can go and commit these individual attacks off their own backs, these independent attacks, pledge allegiance to ISIS, and they're accepted. Um, and, and, you know, ISIS are happy to take them on. We've seen it here in Sydney, and um, I think that's, that's something that um, needs to be acknowledged as well. You're listening to Fourth Estate with me, Marcus, and I'm speaking to Shannon, Amy and Michael. Gorka Media, today's gossip is tomorrow's news, has bitten off more than it can chew. The website has filed for bankruptcy after losing a $140 million lawsuit for publishing a sex tape featuring wrestler Hulk Hogan. Gossip sites have copped its sweet in the past, but what's really interesting in this case is that Hogan's legal costs have been funded by tech billionaire Peter Thiel who's still raging against Gorka for outing him in 2007 with the headline, Peter Thiel is totally gay, people. Thiel has said that tracking down and funding the lawsuits of other victims has been one of the greatest philanthropic things he's ever done. Quote, it's less about revenge and more about specific deterrence. I saw Gorka pioneer a unique and incredibly damaging way of getting attention by bullying people, even when there was no connection with the public interest. So it looks like Gorka Media will be bought up and kept running, but it does beg the question, would the internet be poorer without a site like Gorka that's willing to publish embarrassing exposés? Amy? I I think, you know, like Gorka goes down, something else springs up in its place. I mean, the internet, this is inherently like the currency of the internet, this sort of stuff. And in a sense, like, it's not unique to the internet either. I mean, like, look at the red tops in Britain. It's it's their, you know, it's their trade. So do I personally think, you know, Gawker's a pioneering organisation? Not necessarily. 
but I and do I think we'll be poorer without them? Maybe not, but the fact of the matter is like it is what it is. It's the internet. Gawker is <laughs> what people want to click on. And um, it's been wildly successful, you know, which is why it's been it's become such a target. So calling someone gay who might not be gay is no longer considered slander, so there's no grounds for defamation, but outing someone is a different story. Earlier this year, Fairfax Media apologised for publishing the names, addresses and occupations of 53 people who marched in a pro-equality demonstration that would later become Mardi Gras. Shannon, are there ever situations where it is acceptable for a journalist to out someone? I would say never. There'd be very, very rare instances where it is in the public interest to know somebody's sexuality. And I just can't see in 99.9% of cases why it would be necessary to report on. And it also that the pressure to be out also does come from within the LGBTI community who believe people in the public eye are obligated to be out to therefore be role models and to be present and and have um, a, a public profile, which I also don't accept as a thing, I think it's within everybody's own rights to, to live on their own terms and how they express their own sexuality. So Peter Till is a venture capitalist and the article in which he was outed went on to say that somebody who has this much rank file authority and power uh, in a space that is known for being progressive needs to be out as a sign of tolerance and a sign of preaching the values in which they supposedly uh, live by and their products support. Leaving him then perhaps to one side, what about the case of somebody who speaks for us? What about an elected official who perhaps is um, putting forward policy that could marginalise gay people? What if that person themselves were gay? I think in the 0.01% of cases, that probably would be it. If it was an elected official who can make policy decisions and change laws um, and can affect day-to-day lives of other people, um, if they're being hypocrites, and it and a story like that is in the public interest because obviously there's an element to the, who they are that um, they're withholding and uh, it's affecting other people. So, yes, I think that is the very slim and only time it would be acceptable to out someone. Michael, should we mm. be concerned that a billionaire can effectively bring down a media organisation because it's not to his taste? Mm. Well, I mean, look, I, I'm not one of those journalists who kind of rails against defamation law and, uh, uh, you know, other types of uh, claims that might be brought against journalists. Um, you know, I mean, I actually I, I tend to think it's important that journalists are held to account. Like, you know, we shouldn't be able to spread lies about people or act irresponsibly. But um, $115 million, wasn't it? Um, $140, plus punitive damages, was it? I mean, it seems... Uh, egregious uh, and I don't think I mean you know this wrestler whoever he was um, you know I, I, I don't really think it was such a bad thing I mean argue the merits of it uh, you can uh, whether we needed to know about this sex tape but uh, 115 million dollars seems very steep to me uh, that you're effectively gonna uh, yeah bring down a publisher which uh you know, by all accounts, seems to do some other good work. I mean, my housemate reckons they broke this story about uh, uh, the Orlando gunman uh, possibly being uh, himself uh, a gay man. So they seem to be doing some good work. Um, And, yeah, I reckon uh, that's a very heavy price to pay for one story. Yeah, Gawker is one of the big, one of the larger players in this space. But what about smaller publishers like New Matilda, which, you know, 
they run legally risky stories. Are they out of their minds taking on these kinds of risks? I agree. I think it it takes sets a very dangerous precedent when uh, if a person doesn't like a particular story and they sue the company to within an inch of their lives and essentially um, bankrupt it. Uh, that is really dangerous because journalism is also about sharing news and what's important to the public. And if uh, we set that kind of precedence where people can sue an organisation out of existence because they didn't like something that was written about them, that really concerns me. Yeah, and I think... And, the, and, sorry, Michael. Um, no, no, I was just going to say that you know, therein lies also the problem with defamation law and all these types of yeah. lawsuits is that inherently they are accessed by people with money. That's right. And the intention of them is to having a chi- to have a chilling effect on free speech. I mean, it's to intimidate pr- the press. It's not necessarily about like wanting to seek, you know, redress for grievances. You Hulk Hogan may have feel that he has suffered by, you know, having his sex tape leaked. And I, I would say the other thing is like such a dangerous precedent given like just I just read today that Donald Trump's thinking of setting up his own mini media empire. And I mean, he cancelled the Washington Post press <laughs> credentials this week because he didn't like what they'd said about something he'd said about Orlando in implying that, you know, Obama was implicit or knew about it in some in some way, you know, whatever latest lunacy he's he's been saying. But, I, you know, when you have people like this who are unafraid to sort of swing their, their muscles, so to speak, and they have access to these sorts of, you know, being able to take media companies to court and they have so much money, like he would not bat an eyelid at sort of forking out the kind of money it would take to take a small or large media organisation to court. So, yeah, it's really troubling precedent, I think. In case the conversation freewheels into Donald Trump territory, I better call this topic <laughs> to a close. You're listening to Fourth Estate with me, Marcus, and I'm speaking to Shannon, Amy, and Michael. With the launch of Facebook Instant Articles and Facebook Live and even Snapchat Discovery, social media is no longer just a place for publishers to post their links to stories. It's the very site of news itself. Publishers are starting to realise it's not just their direct competition they're up against. Their real-life competition is Candy Crush, Comedy Central videos, memes, GIFs and office gossip on iMessage. In the face of this onslaught, nearly everyone is cutting back on article word counts and some are posting listicles and bullet point summaries. But the leaders in the pack are delivering news with dynamic content tools, things like interactive graphs and infographics and motion control video. Amy, what can publishers learn from apps and games about creating stimulating and addictive mobile-first news? Well, like, firstly, I guess you have to ask, like, should they learn anything from apps and games? And, I mean, I find this whole debate so frustrating. And, I mean, you know, like, I'm an old-school journo who trained in wire journalism and, like, purity of the news and all this kind of thing. And I, and I hate listicles, even though I'm guilty of having written them for money in the past. And, I, you know, full disclosure up front. Um, but... I guess if you do, and you have to be pragmatic about these things, like, yes, we're in a crowded marketplace and you do have to compete with, I guess, all these other kinds of forms of media. So why, why do people like playing games and, and using um, apps and playing Candy Crush and whatever? And I guess it's like something to do to occupy you because apparently you can never just sit still anymore and like look at the sky or something. You always have to be doing something. Well, away. Shannon is listening and tweeting right <laughs> Shannon now has been on her phone the whole time. It's I'm, so impressive. I'm what they call a digital native. <laughs> <laughs> and Michael's not in the studio, but he's probably filing at the same at the time. Probably. Of his being interviewed. Oh, yeah. I've clocked off. Mate. He's playing Don't Tetris. 
Um, but I guess, yeah, like what do games, why do people like playing games? It gives them something to do. It's easy. It's mindless. It's colourful, you know. Like So I guess there are media organisations that are tapping into some of these ideas and there are some really awesome tools out there, you know, like um, I love these sort of before and after disasters like or really creative use of, of infographics and data mining. Like that stuff is, I actually do think enriches the news landscape. But, you know, should we... Should we dumb down and, you know, turn news stories into little falling blocks that you can, you know, <laughs> should we turn news reading into a quest? I'm not sure about that. So, Shannon, you're an editor. Are editors thinking about how and when and where people are consuming their news? Absolutely. Like, I mean, what's the best kind of content for when someone rolls over and grabs their phone first thing in the morning off the pillow next to them? If we had the answer to that question at the Star Observer, we don't quite have the resources that um, other news organisations do to to market uh, research for that sort of thing. I guess, um, you know, I actually coming here, and that's what I was doing on my phone, I was correcting some typos in a story I just filed uh, because I'm the only editorial staff in the office at the moment. It's been nuts. And there were some typos. Um it was a re- it's a really important story about two homophobic attacks that happened here in Sydney last night and in Melbourne yesterday. Really important story, but it was almost 800 words. And I just wasn't sure if that was too long. I thought I need to embed some tweets or some video or I need to break this up so people will actually read it. I didn't um, because I'm. I, it's an important story and I think the text that I have in there is relevant and necessary. Um it's unfortunate that we have to compete um, and try and come up with creative ways for people to engage in the news because, as we've seen, we're sort of a, a dying art in terms of getting people to read and pay for news if we have to engage them in these creative ways. I don't want to see it happen, but I think I'd rather see someone on the train doing Candy Crush the news than just Candy Crush. But there does seem to be an appetite for long form that's coming back into vogue thanks to like immersive online experiences like the New York Times Snowfall. Mm, mm. I mean, that that was an article that if you want to call it an article, it was an immersive experience yeah. where there was like interactive slideshows and videos and even maps that were woven throughout the story. And just last week, Guardian Australia published an immersive story about coral bleaching. Mm. So maybe our attention spans aren't completely fried. I was looking at my phone as you asked that question. I apologise. <laughs> what did he say? Um, <laughs> is something a question about Beyonce? Is that what we're talking about? No, I, you know, and that's fun. Like as technology and the internet develops, why not have immersive stories? It's different. It's interesting. Um, you know, we've watched how news has changed with radio and television and newspapers as it is. Who are we to judge the changes in how we tell stories? I'm, I'm relishing the fact that people are interested in longer-form journalism. I think it's such an important, um, necessary tool in uh, for the pu- in the public arena. Um, and I think we do really great journalism here in Australia. So to see people embracing that again is a joy. Michael, what are some of the tools that you've seen or perhaps even used yourself that you're pretty excited by? <laughs> well, um, I don't know. I'm not sure if this is exciting or uh, <laughs> dismaying, but... Um... We have the ability to see how far down people scroll on stories. Ooh, um, and, wow, that is fun. Uh, let me let me tell you, um, it it would be a rare. Uh, it'd be about one percent who scroll down to the bottom of an eight hundred word story. Wow. Uh, and uh, oh, but man. you know, having said That's that, I mean, uh, we kind of have this assumption that oh, you know, people's attention spans these days are so much shorter. You know, there are all these distractions created by technology. I don't know if that's actually 
the case. Like, we just used to assume in newspapers that, oh, you know, people would read to the end of a story. Mm. People would read everything in the paper. Um, And now that we actually have these digital tools to show what people are doing and how far they're reading, it turns out that maybe that assumption was just wrong from day one. So, I I mean, look, you know, I'm all for... uh, Experimenting, I think that's what every media organization is pretty much doing these days, is experimenting to see what works and what doesn't. No one really knows the answer. Uh, and the bigger problem is that we really don't know how to make any money out of the whole thing. So um, mm. I don't know if anyone saw that Media Watch episode oh, on Monday so night. So depressing. Oh, God. Uh, we're all cooked. Uh, but that, yeah, that seems to be the verdict. Can I share a story about some feedback we got about our magazine? Are we out of time? We are. I'm so sorry. I'll tweet it. Follow me at Shannon J Power. (laughs) That's it from us at Fourth Estate for this week. Thank you to my guests, Shannon Power, Amy Coops and Michael Cosiol. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast. And if you like what you heard, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Good reviews make it easier for people to find us. Up next is On The Money. My name is Marcus Costello. You can catch us same time next week. Thank you.